Parliament matters today for the same reason as it has ever since 1297, as a place for the executive to seek approval for its measures and the people's representatives. For the first time in many years, it will be able to do so once again in 2021 across a full swathe of policy. This is good news for Parliament as an institution. We will once again conform to the three principles of parliamentary sovereignty set out by A.B. Dicey, that great constitutional theorist, that Parliament is the supreme lawmaking body and can enact laws on any subject, that Parliament cannot bind its successor, and that no court of law or other body for that matter can question the validity of Parliament's enactments. I think all sensible people have the British Constitution as one of their hobbies. It is the most interesting uh, matter to, to discuss and be informed about. As Dicey said, Dicey argued, it is Parliament that is the defender of the liberties of the people, of our ancient constitution and of our freedoms. I, I give way. Vernon, thank you so much for joining me again uh, on my podcast, and this time to discuss A.V. Dicey, who I think is particularly relevant as we have left the European Union, but done so on the back of a referendum. And I wondered if you might like to set out your thoughts as to how relevant Dicey is to current uh, political affairs. Well, uh, Albert Venn Dicey uh, was professor of law at Oxford for much of his life, and he lived from 1835 to 1922. And it is remarkable, there can't be many academic subjects where the main concepts are derived from someone who died almost 100 years ago. And as you say, Jacob, the whole Brexit debate, in a way, is, is a rhapsody on a theme that he laid down the question of sovereignty of parliament, parliamentary sovereignty which I think should be distinguished from national sovereignty. It's not always done. Now, every country has national sovereignty, which uh, it might decide to um, uh, meld with other countries in treaties and alliances. And, of course, we've done that through the United Nations, NATO, and so on. But parliamentary sovereignty is something quite different because parliamentary sovereignty, unlike national sovereignty, isn't something that can be shared. It's an absolute. You've either got it or you haven't got it. It's a bit like virginity. You can't be a qualified virgin and you can't be a qualified parliamentary sovereign. Now, when we joined the European Union, or the European community as it was when we joined it in 1973, it was a quite different and is a quite different organization from United Nations or NATO because it's a superior legal order. That is, its laws bind individual countries and they have direct effect, rather like the laws in a federal state, just as laws in the United States or Canada or Australia bind individual citizens and are superior to the laws of California, Quebec or New South Wales. The European Union is a bit like that. Now, of course, if you're a Dicean, uh, you don't believe that Parliament can abrogate or should abrogate, I should say, sovereignty in that way. So as you say, 
this is still a very live debate on a concept that he adumbrated well over a hundred years ago. His great book, Study of Introduction to the Study of the Law of the Constitution, was first published in 1885. And as you've also said, and perhaps we should talk about this later as well, he was a strong advocate of the referendum. He was indeed the first British advocate of the referendum. And in addition to all that, he had a lot to say about devolution, which was then called Home Rule, and also about rights, human rights. He'd been strongly against the Human Rights Act, that is for sure. So there's a lot to talk about. Uh, yes, indeed. And I was going to come on to his unionism, because that again is at the forefront uh, of debate. And you recently wrote a very interesting piece uh, for the Daily Telegraph on the question of a federal United Kingdom. Um, but sticking with parliamentary sovereignty um, briefly, it does seem to me that the whole debate right back to 1972 has been framed in Dicean terms, even to the extent that with a sovereign parliament, it couldn't bind its successors. So however much European law said that it was superior, in truth it never could be because a parliament has many abilities, but the one ability it doesn't have is to give away its own sovereignty in perpetuity because it can't bind its successors. Well, I think I may have implied that a moment ago, but if I did, uh, I was mistaken because Dicey did actually say that a sovereign parliament could, if it chooses, abdicate its power. He said that the Tsar of Russia, who of course was the head of state in Russia at the time he was writing, the Tsar of Russia had absolute powers, but he could decide to abdicate, indeed, as he did in 1917. He forcibly was abdicated, uh, like. And I think I would argue that the British government, whether it was aware of it or not, was abdicating its parliamentary sovereignty by joining the European Union. And that was confirmed, I think, by a famous court decision, the fact-tame decision in 1991, which for the first time in British history, the uh, judges decided to put aside part of an act of parliament because it went against European Union law. So the British courts were really constitutional courts for the European Union. And that was confirmed by another major case, which has not got quite so much publicity, but I think it's very important. The Ben Carbouche case in 2017, whereby the courts for the first time in British history set aside part of the statute because it went against the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. So Parliament, in effect, became a subordinate body when we joined the European community, now the European Union. And that, of course, is one of the main objections that the Brexiteers had. They wanted to restore sovereignty, as they put it. Uh, which has, of course, now been done. And you made the important distinction between national sovereignty and parliamentary sovereignty. But you've also written a very interesting book calling uh, for a written constitution. Do you think a written constitution and parliamentary sovereignty can go together? Because if the parliament draws up the constitution and can change it by a simple majority, then the written constitution doesn't do very much, does it? Or am I missing something? Well, someone once said that, oh, that my enemy had written a book. Now, I hope I'm not your enemy, but I have. Definitely not. And you've, you've quoted from it, and you hit the central point that there's no point having a constitution 
if Parliament is sovereign. Indeed, the uh, basic reason why we haven't got a constitution, we're one of just three democracies that haven't got constitutions, the other two being New Zealand, where Parliament's also sovereign, and Israel, where they're working towards one, but very slowly. Now, there's no point having a constitution if Parliament is sovereign, because the constitution would consist of just eight words. Whatever the Queen in Parliament enacts is law. I think that is eight words. So, of course, it's a consequence of having a constitution that Parliament abrogates its sovereignty. And if it could do it once when we join the European community, then it can do it again. Now, Dicey would certainly have been bitterly opposed to a British constitution, and he was opposed to any form of constitution, and I suspect that you may be too, but many conservatives uh, on the base of their philosophy would sympathise with the constitution because it does have the great merit of restricting the power of government. Uh, yes, indeed, um, uh, and sets it within certain bounds. Uh, and Dicey, as you also said, came to favour the referendum, and this was really, wasn't it, because of the decline in respect for the House of Lords and its ability to act as a safety valve for the Constitution and for the exercise of sovereignty. He previously felt that a second general election after the House of Lords had stopped something was sufficient, but came round to the referendum. Again, what do you think we can learn from his thoughts on that? And do you think we need to have a clearer understanding of the role of referendums in the British constitutional system, when they apply and what rules they should follow? Well, Dicey was particularly worried about Irish home rule, which a Liberal government proposed to implement, but Dicey said the people would not support it. And he said this was one of the difficulties of our system, that a government could make a fundamental change, which in practice was probably irreversible, without the support of popular opinion. And the referendum would stop that happening. It was a democratic weapon uh, which had some of the effect of a constitution by limiting government. Now, some people have said that this is a contradiction because if parliament is sovereign, you can't have a referendum. Now, that is not the case because, after all, if parliament can legislate as it chooses, it can legislate to require a referendum. What it can't do is to legislate to require uh, a binding referendum. Uh, and our referendums, most of them, have not been binding. It's said that the 2011 alternative vote referendum was, uh, in fact, binding. I'm not sure I believe that, because if Parliament had refused to legislate for the result, I don't think it could have been sued in the courts. Now, the Brexit referendum, it was generally agreed, was an advisory referendum, and in theory, the government ought to have ignored it. But the government said beforehand, as it had on previous referendums, that it would regard itself as bound by the result of the referendum. Now, MPs, of course, couldn't be bound, and again, if they decide to ignore it, they couldn't have been sued in the courts. But you may say it would be unwise for them to ignore what their constituents were calling for. So in practice, it is binding, certainly with a large majority on a large turnout. Really, you can't argue with it. 
uh, for example, the alternative vote referendum had, I, I think, a four to one majority against the alternative vote, very large one anyway, I can't remember the exact figure, but there, there would be no way in which Parliament could ignore that and implement the alternative vote in the face of that objection from the public. So uh, this is very fundamental. Now, as you say, we are in trouble because we don't have any proper rules. We've introduced it, and Dicey would not have objected to that in a very ad hoc and unplanned way to meet particular crises. First, the European Union or European community, as it then was in 1975, when we had our first national referendum, then in relation to devolution, and we've also had them on one or two other subjects. And there's now a big debate, as you know, going on in Scotland as to whether we should have another independence referendum, having had one in 2014, which rejected independence. So there may well be a case for drawing up rules for when they should be held and rules about how they should be held. Uh, the evolution of our constitution is one of the most interesting parts of it, and most of our constitutional development has been ad hoc in response to an immediate emergency rather than, or an immediate political row, rather than carefully thought through development on the basis of the um, Philadelphia Conference to draw up the US Constitution. But I wonder if you think our constitutional development has reached the point where if you were to change the voting system, because there had been a referendum on AV, you would now have to have a referendum to change the voting system. Likewise, you certainly couldn't um, rejoin the European Union without a referendum. And I wonder if we build in political mechanisms, which, while not legally enforceable, make a referendum a requirement for certain constitutional changes. I think that's absolutely right. Um, it's clearly uh, obligatory for a referendum on joining a body like the European Union, which is a supranational legal order. And if ever, I suppose it's unlikely, but if ever a government wanted to take Britain back into the European Union, you'd have to have a referendum. And as you've suggested, any um, measure of a legislative devolution to transfer the powers of Parliament away to subordinate bodies requires a referendum. And as you said, any uh, proposal to alter the electoral system requires a referendum. There's a very good reason for that, because otherwise governments could alter them in their own interest. But broadly speaking, this fits in with liberal philosophy, because you may say that uh, MPs have a mandate to legislate, but not to transfer the powers of Parliament away or to alter the rules by which they are chosen to legislate. So I think there's a good principled rationale for that. And as you say, it's grown up in an unplanned and ad hoc way. I suppose one of the dangers of a constitution, here I'm arguing against myself, is the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which the government is intending to repeal, rightly, in my view. But this was introduced to meet a particular uh, problem namely the coalition of 2010, when the Liberal Democrats, the minority party, didn't want the Conservatives to dissolve at a time when it might be convenient for them, but not for the Liberal Democrats. And this legislation was put in, and in my view, it would have been much better if they just instituted an arrangement for one parliament, to which I think no one could object, rather than have a statute which 
would bind future parliaments until it was repealed. And I think it doesn't work. It's not very good legislation. And I'm glad it's going to be repealed. Well, I completely agree with you. Um, I opposed it when I was first elected to Parliament and all the flaws within it became completely apparent in that the protection of a two-thirds majority was broadly irrelevant because as long as you could get a majority of one, you could repeal the legislation, which people pointed out as it was going through Parliament. And um, I think it went against the grain of the British Constitution and therefore didn't bed in, didn't settle. But what do you think Dicey, if he were to be resurrected nearly 100 years after his death, would make of the current approach Parliament takes to its business, partly by being on Zoom and a remote Parliament, uh, partly in the way it deliberates on legislation now compared to um, his lifetime? Dicey didn't write much about parliamentary procedure, what he was worried about was that, as you said a few moments ago, with the weakening of the power of the House of Lords, the executive had too much power, what Lord Hailsham in the 1970s called an elective dictatorship. And as we both discussed a bit earlier, he saw the referendum as a bit of a check on that. He didn't write about other checks on it, or to the extent that he did, he was opposed to them. Though he would have favoured, I think, a strong local government system. But um, his work does raise the problem of whether we don't need more checks on the executive government. And do you think this is a change from Dicey's point? One of the things we've discussed privately before is um, Britain's preparedness for the First World War and the fact that we didn't have conscription and that most of the continental countries did and that therefore the size of our army was so small in comparison. Uh, and that it's fascinating how opposed Parliament was to conscription right through uh, until it was finally introduced in the middle of the war. And is it fair to say that the late 19th, early 20th century Parliament was much more concerned about individual liberties than perhaps Parliament is in the early 21st century? Well, I think we've always had a very strong liberal culture. I'm, in fact, writing a book on the period 1895 to 1914. And as you may know, a book was published many years ago, which had a lot of influence about this period called The Strange Death of Liberal England. Well, I take a different view, and I'm going to call mine The Strange Survival of Liberal Britain, because I think that liberal culture remained even during the First World War and afterwards. And I think, on the whole, it remains there. I think we are, despite the things I've said a few moments ago, a very strongly liberal society. And I think part of the reason for that is perhaps that we were an insular maritime country, unlike the great continental empires. So we relied on our navy. We didn't leave, need a large army, which was why we were so strongly opposed to conscription. It's often said, and here I make a point that you will sympathise with, and I say it, although I was not myself a Brexiteer, it's often said that Brexit has uh, released illiberal and racist feelings. And that's quite wrong. Uh, opinion polls show that we are actually more welcoming of immigrants than any of the other countries in the European Union. In 2019, we sent more members of ethnic minorities to the European Parliament than any of the other 
members of the European Union, a number of whom said none at all. So although I was opposed to Brexit, I think it's quite wrong to say that it's made British society illiberal. And indeed, we have no party in Parliament or with any strength in the country of the type of the um, Front National in France or the Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, which is a neo-Nazi party, or the Sweden Democrats, or any of these very unpleasant parties. We don't have any of that. We're a strikingly liberal country, and extremist parties like communists and fascists have never got more than a very small percentage of the vote, even in the bad conditions of the Depression in the 1930s. But it's, it's very interesting, uh, that argument, and, and one I'm very sympathetic to, and I think you've seen it in the way we have responded to the COVID restrictions, which in this country have been accepted and adopted by the country rather than enforced with aggressive policing. And I think that says something very attractive about the liberalism of this country. If I can just come back to, to Dicey uh, and his view, do you think, or the, or the consequence of his views, do you think we are returning to a sort of halcyon Dicean era, having left the European Union, or is that always slightly unrealistic? Well, we're returning to a Dicean position in the sense that Parliament is sovereign, but I think there have been really too many changes in the last 40 or 50 years, particularly under the Blair government, to make a pure Dicean position feasible. Uh, for example, the Human Rights Act, but also devolution, which Dicey, as I perhaps indicated earlier, would have been strongly against, as he was against Home Rule for Ireland, which was in fact devolution. And Dicey took the view that there was no middle way between the unitary state and independence. And many people have argued that because we didn't give Ireland home rule, because we wouldn't choose that middle way, Ireland really had no alternative but to become independent, which broke up the United Kingdom. And it was for that very reason that I was a supporter of devolution for Scotland and Wales. I think the union is of such fundamental importance, as of course did Dicey. And I actually think that the restoration of parliamentary sovereignty away from the European Union creates a greater relevance for the United Kingdom in a way that it was becoming slightly ir irrelevant when you had Brussels and areas within the European Union wanting things from Brussels, making national governments less important. Where Dicey was absolutely right was in saying that there was an absence of the federal spirit in England. And we're now hearing a good deal of talk from people who want to preserve the union, like, for example, Gordon Brown, the former prime minister, that we ought to have a federal reconstruction of the United Kingdom. And I really wonder what people think federalism means, because it could mean either that you had an English parliament parallel to the United Kingdom parliament, situated, I suppose, in Sunderland or Newcastle. It might be even situated in your constituency in Somerset. We, we don't know. But to have another set of politicians and civil servants, uh, I think, would be the last thing that Britain wants. And it would replicate the dominance of England in the system, because 
you couldn't have England with just the same weight as Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. It would have a huge weight which would overpower Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So it would be a recipe for collapsing the Union, in my view. And the other type of federalism you could have is one based on the regions. But there isn't much regional feeling in uh, England, certainly not in the south of England. I think if you asked your constituents in Somerset which region they thought they belonged to, they'd look at you as if you were perhaps a bit odd, because uh, they'd say, we, we haven't got that much in common with people in Cornwall. And Cornwall to Bristol is hardly a region. And region is a, an EU construct, perhaps. People living in Bristol or Canterbury don't feel they belong to a region. And it would be mad to have different laws in Canterbury from those in Bristol. So there's no chance of getting an asymmetrical system in the United Kingdom. Uh, the federal spirit, as I said, is absent. And in my view, the way to proceed with devolution in England is not through legislative devolution, but to continue with what the Cameron government did, which was devolution to combined authorities with elected mayors, as you've got, for example, in Greater Manchester or the West Midlands. And that would have the additional advantage of allowing the integration of health and social care, which would be a great gain. I think we are definitely over-centralised. But federalism or legislative devolution is not the right path for England, in my view. Well, I, again, I, I agree with you. But Balfour made exactly these arguments around Irish Home Rule, where he said that um, should Ireland, Wales and Scotland be full countries as they are, but England be chopped up into little pieces. And I think that's a very graphic way of thinking about it. And I, I also don't think there's any demand in England for an English parliament, which, as you say, would be disproportionately big and I again agree on regions I think living as I do in Somerset there's a loyalty to the historic county but no interest at all in the southwest it's a bureaucratic concept uh, as you rightly say for the Eurocrats so um, I'm wholly behind you on your campaign against this uh, superficially attractive approach to federalism which I don't think has been properly thought through Vernon, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure, and I learned so much listening to you. Um, so thank you. I, I much enjoyed it. Thank you for asking me to do it. Mm -hmm.